Next Lord's Day, we will be celebrating Orthodox Easter. Uh, this is Roman Easter or traditional Easter, whatever you want to call it, Western Easter. Uh, it is in the midst of Passover this year, which is very unusual, actually. Um, when the Roman Catholics set up this date, it was the formula they did was to avoid Passover, not to embrace it. Um, because, because, of course, the Catholic Church was very much against the, being dependent upon rabbis to establish when their celebration of the resurrection was. And so we know that our Lord was crucified uh, later in the Passover week. In fact, probably at the very end of the Passover week, the eight days. And we are in the midst of it. Orthodox Easter has always established the first Lord's Day after Passover, which will be next Lord's Day. So we are going to enjoy this week as well as next week, celebrating that. Well, I invite you this morning to turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. We have finally moved out of the very private conversation between Jesus and his 12 disciples, 11 disciples. And we come now to uh, going back into my more traditional way of preaching, which is verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We have gone through that conversation thematically uh, to build upon what Jesus Christ was teaching and as he repeats certain things throughout that conversation, uh, that rather than finding those repetitions and, and we, we uh, uh, put them together for a thematic presentation of what Jesus was teaching throughout that uh, discourse with his disciples. We come now to chapter 17. And it is very evident where we are and when we are. Uh, they have left the upper room. They have traversed now the Kidron Valley. They are off into the area that we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, how do we know that? Uh, while John does not report that here, we certainly know that from the other Gospels, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who report that. And, and now John isn't going to repeat what they have said. John, being the last of the four Gospels being written, already was well aware of what was reported in the other three accounts and wants to take us beyond that. He also has, of course, his major themes that he is driving home, that he sees the uh, latter first century church. Remember, he's the last living apostle and so he's seeing some of what they are being confronted with and wants to address some of those in all of his writing, really, particularly in his letters and in the Gospel of John. And so we come now to his presentation of Jesus' prayer. And before we get into that, I want to take you back into uh, the, pre the presentation from the other Gospels. And so, uh, for our example, out of the three, we are going to the Gospel of Mark. And so hold your place there in John 17. I know I haven't read even one portion of it, but I invite you to go to the Gospel of Mark as we see our Lord's Prayer in Gethsemane here. And that is in chapter 14. I'm very late in chapter 14. I had to turn a page. Okay. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 43. Uh, and let, well, let, I'm sorry, let's back up. I went ahead. There was 32, sorry. Uh, in verse 32, uh, we'll read this account and then we will transfer our minds over to John 17 and we'll understand why after reading this. It says, Then they came to a place which is named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. 
And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so we find that Jesus Christ is in Gethsemane. His heart is filled with anguish. He, it is evident, uh, even before he begins his praying, that he is greatly concerned, he's, he's even to death, and that he is already contemplating what is coming. It is not the fear of the pain, but rather of the anguish of becoming sin for us. That is what is of great concern. It is not the idea that having nails uh, uh, driven into his body, of, of having scourges, of having a crown of thorns put upon him. Of, that is not what we're really referencing here. What we are really referencing, what is truly at the sorrow there, that even, even to death there, uh, is the concept of being separated from the Father even for a moment. He has already humbled himself and come and dwelt among sinful men, and that alone was a great act of compassion for us to leave the glory that we're going to be talking about a lot this morning to bring and to live among sinful men. But now to go even further and to become sin for us, he who knew no sin, and in that sinful state we know that the earth became dark, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that that uh, one saying of Jesus uh, overrides them all. This is what he feared. This is what he had never experienced. This is aloneness that he was anticipating. An aloneness that he had never had. For he had always been one with the Father. And now to be separated from him uh, was terrifying, frankly, and so he prays this prayer, and we focus in on this prayer, and we talk about the prayer of Gethsemane in the garden, but we also need to remind ourselves that if you read the prayer listed here in Mark and in Matthew and in Luke, uh, it is a relatively short prayer. It is encapsulated in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless not what I will, but what you will. Uh, and spoken, uh, re reported other ways. And we could easily say, well, he's just going to keep repeating this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. But we know that Jesus Christ tells us not to do vain repetitions. And so it says that he was praying for one hour. He prayed for an hour. He didn't pray this phrase, which only takes a few seconds really to pray. Uh, even in anguish of heart, it could be repeated. Uh, it might slow you down somewhat. Um, but uh, we, we are confident that there is more to his praying than just this one sentence. But this was the sentence that all the gospel writers wanted to impress upon us. 
was the concept that Jesus Christ knew what was coming, that it was not something he was looking forward to, and yet he was willing to surrender himself to his Father's will. And we have an incredible amount of doctrine represented here that is largely ignored by so many in Christendom that we have God here evidently and very plainly declaring having two wills, the will of the Son and the will of the Father. I don't know how you can more clearly present the concept that we have two persons in the Godhead, at least. And then we have the Spirit as well. We can, we've already taught on that in John 14, 15, and 16. And so uh, it is very evident that they are two distinguishable uh, personalities, that one has his will, one has another will. And we, here on earth, we see this prayer that we are called to pray very similarly in the uh, Lord's model prayer. Uh, May your will be done on earth as it already is being done in heaven. And so we have already been called to that kind of prayer. Now Jesus is going to model that. Not when it's easy, but when it is most difficult. It is these times that really measure whether your will is surrendered to God or whether you maintain it for yourself. Not when it is a simple thing, an easy thing, but when it is a difficult thing, a troubling thing, and when tribulation might occur because of it. Lord, I will do your will. And so Christ was already ready to surrender, but he wanted to pour his heart out to his Father. He uses this terminology, Abba, Father, this very personal thing. I'm coming to you, Daddy, uh, with what is really troubling me. And a fascinating statement that all things are possible for you. Uh, that, but yet, this is the way that we are going to provide salvation for all men. Is it possible for God not to provide the salvation for all men? Sure. He didn't have to love you. He chose to love you. He chose to do this for you. And so we find him surrendering to the will of the Father. But what I want to look at here and develop is what John develops in chapter 17, if you want to flip over there. It says he prayed for one hour, another hour, and then finally his betrayer came. It took Judas at least two hours, two and a half hours, maybe three, to get everything together and uh, get the soldiers heading up to Gethsemane, knowing that the Mount of Olives is where he would find his Lord. And so Jesus prayed more than just this one phrase over and over and over again, and John records this for us. And we're just going to look at the first five verses. We're not going to get any farther than that today, uh, but it's going to introduce us into a, a major theme of, again of John. Uh, not maybe the top three that might come to your mind, but it is a significant theme for John. And so we're going to look at here in, in these verses, where Jesus is praying to the Father, uh, with regard to his relationship with God. And we find an incredible resource here that, that dovetails with our understanding of, of the other Gospels' description of it here in uh, Christ's conversation with his own Father. Jesus spoke these words, it says in verse 1, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. 
And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Oh, now, and now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And this, uh, he's going to then drive into some praying for the 11 disciples who he left behind him there as he stepped forward to pray on his own before, between him and the Father. We find in these first five verses his conversation with God, which, goes, which is inclusive of what we have read in Mark, um, but it is stated in a, in a different manner. And so let's develop this a little bit. Uh, we want to talk about a single word, really. And it's repeated over and over again. You cannot miss it. And that is to glorify. To glorify God. And to have God glorify you. What an odd thing to think about. And so Jesus Christ is saying, um, his, his first request, he has just, he's come to the Father. He said, the hour has come. He knows that it is time for his betrayal, his crucifixion, his trial, all that is entailed there, his death itself. And he says, the hour has come. It has it occurred. And now I am asking you to glorify your son. Now, when we think of the word glory, we have uh, a concept that is driven largely by our ego. An egotistical idea of what it means to have glory. And that is to have the praise and adoration of men for being either uh, being really good at something, uh, having a great accomplishment, uh, something along that line. And we, and we envision times when you are in front of a great arena and you've done a great feat of beating up or uh, getting victory over some enemy or some other competitor. And we think of that as glory. And we think of the, the, the hailing people and, and, and applauding them. And we usually associate that with the idea of glorification. And when we bring it into our concept of glorifying God, we usually associate that with our singing and our, our public statements of glory, with, with, with those kinds of, of accolades. And we usually think in those terms when we think about glory and of glorification. And of course, um, there, we're not discrediting that from this, that there is an aspect of this, but John has a very different view of glorification. And so let's take this illustration of the, of the athlete in battle, or the warrior in battle, and we, we understand that there is an extent of glorification at, for the victor. The victor goes the spoils among them as the applaud of men. And so put in your mind this very uh, powerful, well-conditioned um, uh, uh, athlete who goes into uh, the arena and battles, and another very powerful, well-conditioned athlete or, or other animal, something like that, and has great victory. And we give them applause. And we say, wow, we are amazed at, the, at your power and your, and your uh, victory and your strength and your skill. And we focus on all of those things and we glorify that person in that setting. And that is one kind of glory, but that is not the glory that John understands glory to be. 
Now take that same very powerful, well-conditioned man uh, with all of his skill set and strengths, all of his energies and and conditioning in place, and put him in this scene where he has across his shoulders a comrade who has been injured. And using all of his strength and power and skill is carrying that injured comrade through a battle and is being injured himself in the course of that to bring his comrade to safety. This is the glory that John understands glory to be. It is still the exercise of strength and skill and agility and ability uh, and will even. It is still the exercise, but here this is to defeat something, uh, but the other one is to serve something. And Jesus Christ is going to fit both of those. What I'm trying to not, I'm not saying that this is wrong. I'm saying that it is incomplete understanding of glory. For certainly Jesus Christ is the victor and he's going to conquer sin and death for us through the resurrection. And we applaud that today. We're going to applaud it again every Lord's Day that he has won the victory. And we we revel in that because that victory is for us. He has conquered sin for us. He has conquered death for us. And so we forget the for us part. And the for us part is that secondary picture of glory. That doesn't necessarily lead you to applause, but leads you to weep. That makes your heart burst open to think about the suffering that person was willing to endure to deliver his comrade. The risks that he was willing to take to carry someone who may, have or may, may die nonetheless, but he's going to carry him to safety even at great personal risk. And we honor that. That that great, powerful, skilled, and, and, and conditioned man uh, goes into a fire and carries out individuals who may have already suffocated to, to bring them into safety. And there is a glory there. A glory not by the victory, but the glory by the service. And it is both of these that we need to focus on because even in John's day, in the time of Roman gladiators and all of that in the arena, the focus was on this kind of glory and they negated and ignored the service kind of glory. This is what John keeps bringing out. He's already brought it out in the past in this book and and where Jesus Christ says, says, you know, I'm going to lay it down and and he he talks about... uh, My life is mine. I can lay it down. I can pick it up again. It's mine to give. But we have him talking about in his relationship with God the Father, um, I will glorify him. And the Father says, I'm going to glory. And it's going to go from glory to glory. And we talked about that. I'm going from glory to glory. I'm going from this one concept of glory into the concept of glory that is more substantial. It is more consequential. It It is more honored amongst us if we really think about it. 
And so when we come to this word here in John 17 of glorify your son and glorifying the father, uh, which is going to be used over and over and over again, let us pick up the concept of glory that John wants us to have, and that is the glory of serving sacrificially. And so he says, glorify your son. He is asking the father to serve him. He is asking the Father to exercise his grace and mercy, his strength, his power, uh, all that he is on behalf of the Son, and to bring, to glorify me, not to exalt me just victorious, but to exalt me as your number one servant. Glorify your Son, that I can glorify you. So Jesus Christ has a much to endure, and that is certainly tied into this concept that he wants to bring glory to the Father, and therefore he's going to need the Father's help. He is asking the Father for help, essentially. Glorify your Son, that is, strengthen me, serve me, that I might serve you. Serve me, well, where does that ultimately conclude? Not only in endurance, but look down in verse 5. <clears throat> verse 5, and again, this is a... a Hebrew writing, remember, Jesus and the disciples are all Hebrews. They're all Jewish men. And so here's the, and, and so it is very uh, carefully written that they have this formula uh, commonly used where they have a, something that they introduce with that they're going to conclude with. Uh, in, in prose and in poetry, we call it the ABBA uh, format. And uh, we're going to see it here. So he asked, Glorify your son in verse 1. We come to verse 5. He says, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. And now we get to find out what he may be referring to more than even enduring the cross. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. So we're going to come back to that. I'm going to leave that and let you think about that for a little bit because I want to tie in another passage. But I want to see what Jesus Christ is asking for. Uh, and why is he asking for it? And so, uh, let's, we're going to talk about what that reference to. I think you already know, you should know, but let's look at the intermediate verses of 2, 3, and 4 before we identify that which Jesus Christ is asking for. What is he really asking God to do for him when he says, glorify your son, glorify me together with yourself? Well, let's look at some of the intermediate verses. Verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh. And so right away we find that Jesus Christ recognizes he already has, God has already glorified him to an extent. That is, he's already given him authority. There is an authority that Jesus Christ has on earth, that he had when he walked the earth. He exemplified that regularly. How do you exemplify the authority he had over all flesh? Uh, he, he demonstrated authority over the demons. Uh, in Castanella, he demonstrated authority over disease and disability um, by healing people. He demonstrated authority over even his enemies when they wanted to kill him and wanted to kill him and wanted to kill him. He says, oh, the time's not right. I'm just going to walk away. You can't find me. Uh, so he's demonstrated authority over all flesh. Uh, but also that he is there and he is serving all men. And so not only in his experience of his activity as a Savior, 
but also spiritually, he carries the authority for all men on him. He is the God-man. He is the second Adam, is how Romans would have presented him. Here, Jesus Christ describes himself as having authority over all flesh. That's already something he possessed. It's not something he's going to earn. He says, you've already given me that. I already have that authority because I am God incarnate. I am the second Adam. And I have come here in obedience to the Father. I've obeyed the Father throughout. And now I'm going to obey you to the very end. And that uh, role as a second Adam allows me to offer salvation to all men. Everyone touched by Adam's sin is going to be touched by Christ's sacrifice. That is a principle clearly taught in Romans chapter 5. And so I already have this authority to offer salvation to all men. And that authority you gave to me for a reason that I, or he, should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And again, we uh, find that his goal is not to use that authority for his own interests, but to use that authority to serve. And this is how he is glorifying you. You see, he's asking the Father to glorify him, that he might glorify the Father, and in the midst of that, somehow, you have a benefit. You are being given a wondrous opportunity to participate in this transference of glory. He's going to offer eternal life to all who believe. Now, we can get caught up in his statement saying that all that you have given me, and that's going to come up more so when we get into some of the passages regarding his disciples, the 11. Um, but we saw that in other texts in John where it is very obvious that the ones who has given him are all those who, will, who believe. Uh, that this isn't a stated number, it is a principle. All you have given me are the ones who will believe. It is not a chosen select number of people, but rather an overriding principle that salvation is offered to all men, and those who believe are the ones that God gives to me, those who choose to follow. He invites all men to follow him, and those who do so are the ones that God has given him. It is not an individual list. It is a principle of operation is based upon that. But we're going to give eternal life to as many as, as, as know you, who, who, who will uh, trust in your son Jesus Christ, the one that you've sent. And so we find his under, complete understanding of what the purpose of all this was. It is not lost in the anguish of his heart. He is, the purpose of his coming is not lost on him. He reminds himself as he prays to the Father, I understand my purpose. What it means to glorify is to serve to serve sacrificially at great risk and at great, uh, but for great reason. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to serve him. And not serve myself, but for others. This eternal life that they may know you, and this is eternal life, he says in verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That eternal life essentially comes down to an intimate knowledge. This isn't uh, Gnosis' knowledge about, but intimacy with. That this is eternal life, that you are intimate with the Father and Jesus Christ. 
the way we describe it in modern English, uh, that is something I've heard all my life, and you've probably heard all your life, is do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? We use that term. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What you're trying to communicate is that you have an intimate knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. That is, it is not just about them. Now, I have some knowledge about a lot of people. Um, all of us have some knowledge about uh, the president of our United States. We have some knowledge about him. Is that correct? How many of you are his intimates? Uh, if you call him the Donald, it's probably sarcastic or derogatory. It's not because he told you to call me. Just call me Donald. Uh, no. Uh, we have a lot of knowledge about him, but not an intimate with him. And so it is in reference to God. Remember, the people are going to be yelling out, crucify him, crucify him, have extensive knowledge about God. They worship him almost daily. They are the priests, they are the Sanhedrin, they are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. They have extensive knowledge about God. They are offering sacrifices Sabbath by Sabbath. But they do not intimately know him. And Jesus Christ's statement here is that I have come, and this is what eternal life really means, what it really means to receive Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior is that you have intimate knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. That they are now part of the defining relationship of your life. They are now who you are. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. He is not just someone I read about. He is someone that I am personally related to, which is why we use that term. I am intimate with him. I am his and he is mine. I am his follower. He is my Lord. I am his child. He is my Savior. I am intimate with him. And it is no mistake that in this place of great intimate prayer that Christ cries out, Abba, Father, a very intimate description. And so we have this same opportunity to see the glory of God in our life as we come to God and say, Abba, Father, that we, you, are my, you are the one I depend upon and rely upon. I am not talking to you as some being that I study and, and think about, but rather someone who I love and loves me. Someone I want to please because you have done so much for me already. Someone I want to serve. And this is eternal life, is to know the one true God and the one whom the true God has sent to the earth to deliver us from our sin and death and to glorify us. Think of the glory that is ours, who have chosen to follow after Jesus Christ. We will consider it a little bit more here shortly. This is salvation. This is the message that we take to the world. Is that they need to be, that, they, that if they want eternal life, they need to have an intimacy with God that requires something of them, and that is they must accept the one that Jesus sent, or that God sent, Jesus Christ. That he has sent to accomplish something for them, and that we trust in that alone. Verse 4, Jesus continues. I have glorified you on the earth. 
I have finished the work which you have given me to do. He understands certainly that the worst is still ahead of him technically, but he has already embraced it. Because he's already prayed the prayer, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He has already embraced that. And now he says, I have glorified you on earth. And let us clearly understand that, that this is the number one priority of the Son, is to glorify the Father. In so doing, that glory overflows, and the number two priority is to redeem men. In God sending the Son, His number one priority is to redeem men by glorifying the Son. That is, so the Son wants to glorify God, God wants to redeem men, and so my first act is to bring glory to the Father and to do His will. His will is to redeem men. That is His priority. That's why He sent you. And so as I glorify God, God then redeems men, and I am glorified by those redeemed men. And we have this this trifecta of, of glory going on if it's done right. And Jesus Christ has certainly done his part right. God the Father has definitely done his part right. So the only way this is going to be messed up is if that third one, the redeemed, mess it up by seeking our own glory instead of that of the Father and the Son. And I would contend that that's an impossibility for a truly redeemed person. And yes, I just made that a measure of whether you are saved or not. It's whether you choose to glorify God in your life or glorify yourself or glorify something else in your life. Yes, I've just made that a measure because God's word is going to make that a measure. This is life, to have intimate relationship with the Father and the Son, which means that you are seeking to do what Jesus Christ did, which was to glorify both and to receive glory from them. And so Christ Jesus has glorified God on earth. He has done that in multiple ways, not only by the powerful signs and wonders that he did, but, and we talked about that's what the first level of belief, and Jesus Christ accomplished those. Men should believe him because of the signs he did. You're getting real tired of hearing this, I'm sure, week after week. But also by his teaching, he taught them the truth. I have given them your truth. Your word is truth. I'm going to sanctify them by the truth, he's going to pray later on. I have sanctified them by your truth. I've set them apart by giving them truth. And so it's his teaching. He has glorified the Father by his teaching. Even his teaching when he says, I, the Father, I and the Father are one. That glorifies him because it's truth. And so I'm going to glorify him in obedience. I'm going to glorify him in these signs and wonders. I'm going to glorify him in, a, in, his, in my teaching. Uh, I have done that. And I'm prepared now and I have embraced that I'm going to do your will to the very end. I'm going to finish this. This is a task you gave me to do. And certainly uh, redeeming men is a joy that is set before me. We know that and we studied that last week. The joy is set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down right on the Father. 
And so we've already studied that. And so certainly there was joy for Jesus to do that. He looked beyond the sorrow to that joy. But primarily, what drives Jesus to endure what he has to endure is, I want to glorify my Father in heaven. This is the prime motive for the Son. And that's why Jesus Christ keeps, and, and John particularly in his writings, keeps driving us back to understanding that the Father sent the Son. I'm here to obey the Father. The Father is the one who has orchestrated your redemption. I am here to enact it. He is the one who has planned it. He is the one who has loved you. And now I am the one to put his love into motion and into actuality. And thus, the Son's primary desire was to glorify the Son, or glorify the Father. And now, he asks the Father to glorify him. And let's understand this. Oh, I was listening to the uh, service at Bethel on uh, Good Friday, their Good Friday service, um, which, of course, was our Thursday night. Uh, and my wife and I were listening, and Pastor... Uh, Medell was speaking out of Romans chapter 6. I invite you to turn there very quickly. Romans chapter 6. He didn't speak on this phrase, um, but as he was studying it, it caught my eye, and I was ashamed that I did not have it in part of my notes already <laughs> for this message. And uh, my wife says, oh, she, she was sitting beside me and saw this happen. Um, let's... Uh, Let's read this text for a little bit. It's really in verse 4 that I want to focus, but let's start off in verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We're going to stop right there. And of course, the phrase in there that caught my eye, because I had already had this message been worked on, was that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by, not two or four, but by the glory of the Father. Do you see it there? Paul joins John in understanding a different view of glory than you and I think of. And it is really a statement of how God answered Jesus' prayer Glorify your son. Give me the glory that we can have together. The glory that I shared prior to coming to earth. What is Jesus Christ essentially praying for? He is praying for the resurrection. When he is praying, Lord, glorify your son, he is praying that, Father, when this is all done, I've already surrendered my will to your will. I, I'm not looking forward to this. It's troubling me. The whole idea of being separated from you is, is just 
is just immense. Hence the sweating drops of blood. Father, I've already surrendered my will to your will. Now I ask you, as I am going to obey you to the point of being separated from you, please, Father, glorify your Son. What is he praying? He's praying, Lord, by your glory, resurrect me. By your glory, resurrect me. We find it here, and in, in described by Paul in chapter 6, verse 4, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Not for the glory, not to the glory, but by the glory. And here is the concept of glory that we miss out on, and that is sacrificial, powerful service to someone else. And here is a concept of the resurrection that we often lose track of, and that but the disciples never did. If you go through the book of Acts, and I've done this sermon before here years ago, and you read what they describe, you people crucified him, God raised him from the dead. Over and over and over and over again, that is their testimony. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. The crucifixion was the hands of men. The resurrection was the hand of God. It was the glory of God to resurrect him. When Jesus Christ says, glorify your son, that is by taking your strength, your power, your might, your skill set, your abilities, your will, and serve me. By resurrecting, that I might be back into the, your presence. And we don't often... We, we, when I gave you the analogy of this, this very strong person and these two kinds of glory, uh, certainly the secondary glory uh, j just strikes you deeper, doesn't it? It gives you awe and it gives you, uh, th that's a God I'm proud of. That's a God, I, I, I'll follow him forever. The victorious part is, is good, and we get a little excited about that, um, but then we're kind of wanes, and we're waiting for the next victory, right? Because <laughs> now there's next bout, the next bout, the next bout, we want to, you know, we want to see him have an undefeated season, right? Uh, but this kind of glory never fades. The glory of sacrificial service, I'm going to put all of my power, skills, ability, desires into this sacrificial high-risk service of someone else who cannot help themselves. And we weep with such honor demonstrated in front of us. This is the glory Jesus is tapping. Lord, when he asks, glorify your son, he, is, he, he tells us what it is. It is that we might be united together, uh, that we might be uh, glorified together. i got to find the right marker in John 17. That you uh, and I would be glorified together with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That we might serve together in that wondrous place of light and, and, and praise and, and glory that's there in, in every facet, in the brightness there of his glory.
Oh, that we, Lord, serve me by your glory. And he's really praying for the resurrection and the reunion with God. Because he knows. Here's what your Savior knew that night. He knew that when he became your sin, he would be separated from the Father. So before that happened, he prayed, Father, I've obeyed you. I've glorified you. You've given me authority. I've used that authority not for my own interests, but for these that you love and that you want me to redeem. I have given them everything. We're going to see that repeated again, specifically towards the disciples. Uh, and we're going to see, but we see it here, that I've done all of that. I've been obedient. Now, Lord, based upon my desire to glorify you on earth by doing your work, uh, glorify your Son. Resurrect me. He's giving himself into his Father's hand. And then we find in Romans 6 that by that God's glory, he takes Christ and resurrects him. Now we can try to quantify glory as well in terms of light and brightness and energy and all those kinds of things. And we could get into the, 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 the Shroud of Turin and, and, and things like that. We can talk about all that, but let us not ever lose track of the concept of this kind of glory that says, I am helpless, and now this person is taking all of the risks. They are taking all of the power and energy and skill to deliver me. And Jesus Christ is going to be in the grave. The resurrection is going to be the work of his Father. Men are going to crucify him, but God is going to raise him from the dead. This is where Jesus prays that prayer. But I want you to see in what kind of life it is couched, these kinds of prayers where we ask God to glorify us. And I believe we, can, we should be praying that prayer because we, according to Romans 6, because we, if we have died with him, we know that we'll also live with him. That one of the purpose, the primary purpose of sending the Son was your redemption, which means eternal life. This is why the Son came, why he endured, is that we might have eternal life, intimate knowledge with Jesus Christ, with the Father. And therefore, we look in, in the prayer of God, of Jesus Christ, glorify your Son, glorify me together with yourself, that I can be with you like it was uh, before the world was. <laughs> Before there was sin, before there was, you created anything, when it was you and me in glory and the Spirit. We come into this couch and we, we understand it. This is what we need to have. We need to have the same testimony that, Lord, whatever authority you have given me, I have served you with it. We talk about spiritual gifts that if you've received the Holy Spirit, you have spiritual gifts. What is your responsibility for those spiritual gifts? Is to serve others with them. They're not for your personal benefit. Any authority that is given to you, listen carefully. Matthew 28, 19. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. What does he say? Go baptize. And he says, I breathe on you, now you have the Holy Spirit, and now with this authority, go Share the gospel. You cannot miss it. 
you have been given, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you place your trust in Jesus Christ, you have Holy Spirit residing in us. He has gifted us. The purpose of those gifts is not for your own entertainment or comfort. The purpose of those gifts is for you to serve God, to glorify the Father with whatever authority he's given you. Whether that authority be within your home, that you glorify God in the exercise of that authority. That's why we have commandments for husbands of how they are to treat their wives, for parents, how they are to treat their children, and how do you glorify God in your home? How do you exercise that to be a, a man of faith, a, a parents of, of faith and of righteousness, of wisdom? Uh, we find it instructions for pastors and deacons and the authority that I give you. How do you, you glorify me in them? Not how do you make yourself wealthier, not how do you make yourself more popular, uh, how do you make your life easier? No. Any authority, any gift of God that has been entrusted into my care, I am a steward before him to bring glory to him, to multiply it not for me, but for him. This is the testimony of Jesus Christ. He says, all the authority you've given to me, I have exercised, I have glorified you here on earth by my signs and wonders, by, by my... <laughs> sacrifice coming by my teaching. I've done all that, and I'm, I'm finishing the work. Oh, that we'd have that same testimony. Lord, you've sent me out to be your ambassador. I am here to do your work, and I'm going to finish well. What a tragedy to think you've gone through your whole life, and then when confronted with a little opposition, you stop and don't finish. It's like the athlete that is within a few yards of the finish and collapses. It's like the soldier that is, that is one barrier from complete victory and stops and retreats. Why? Jesus Christ says, I'm finishing it. I'm going to do God's will all the way through to the end, knowing what it's going to cost me. And it, the cost was weighing on him. It troubled him deeply. And it's okay to be troubled about that cost, but don't let that trouble persuade you not to pay it. To be disloyal to the one who has redeemed you. And so, as Christ in praise for the Father to glorify him, to resurrect him, we have that same prayer, do we not? For we have a hope and a confidence that the one who raised our Lord from the dead will raise us from the dead. That is a testimony of Christian joy and peace. I can confront anything in this world and I will do it, and will do it to the glory of God. That will be number one priority in all of my thinking, in all of my decisions, in all of my activities. I will put myself in the same condition that Jesus Christ, I will try to model that in my life, that I will glorify the Father while I'm on earth. I will glorify the Son, that, and then we come to God, the Father, and we pray this prayer, Lord, glorify us together with you. Lord, we look forward to the resurrection. Just as we want to pray for it just as much as Jesus was praying for it. Jesus was praying for a resurrection. 
or praying for the Father to serve him, that even when he had become the sin of the world, that you would not reject him forever, but that he would raise him from the dead, and he did that. The Father loves the Son. And the Father sent the Son because he loves you and the world. And so the Father serves us. And that's why we speak of heaven as a place of glory, is where we will eternally be carried by a loving Father. And we will be able to eternally serve a glorified Son. This is what we anticipate. This is what we look forward to. This is what we get excited about this time of year during the Passover week and as it comes to a conclusion as the Lord's day arrives year by year and even week by week the first day of the week is not only do we marvel and rejoice over our Savior's resurrection but we pray Lord glorify us in that day and when we come to passages like Revelation chapter Seven, and we see the arrival of the saints in heaven, and we go, Wow, I can't wait till that day. Lord, glorify us. But it calls on us, remember, to have the same testimony of Jesus Christ. Are we glorifying God while on earth? That He might glorify us after death. Jesus Christ rightly puts forward the argument of why he prays, glorify your son. You can pray this prayer, but don't forget the intermediate verses understanding the position necessary to pray such a prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this privilege today of gathering your name and of meditating on the power of your glory, of serving us by sending your only begotten Son. And Lord, we thank you for your Son glorifying you on earth, even to the point of death on the cross and separation from you. Become our sin, he who knew no sin. Lord, we praise you that he glorified you. We praise him. And Lord, we pray that we might act to behave, to believe, to follow you as your son followed you. That we might act like joint heirs of Jesus Christ. That we might bring glory to your name by using all the authority, all the truth, all the power, all the gifts. That we might use them not for our own interests, but for your exaltation to serve you and to serve one another with. And Lord, we know that we have a sure hope because you've raised Jesus from the dead that we who have died with him, dead to ourselves, yet alive to you, dead in our old man, walking as new creatures. Lord, glorify us that day. Christ Jesus, then we pray. Amen.